Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-475 of the Run Run Live podcast. Here we are back at it again. Today we talk with Kayla, who is a coach, and she specializes in a plant-based methodology for her athletes. Very interesting conversation. We had a good chat, and I think we can always learn from coaches that's why I talk to them a lot, because coaches have the advantage of experience, not only their own direct knowledge and experience, but the leverage of experience of everyone they coach as well, because when you teach, you also learn. It's been a long couple of weeks since we last talked. My new role at work has been weighting me down, weighing me down. It's hard to switch gears to being creative from being mentally engaged at work. And even though, as you'll hear in today's show, I have been, I haven't been running at all. I still struggle to find time to do everything that I seem to have signed myself up to do. But, you know, we keep moving. Like the characters in my apocalypse story, we find a way to survive. So in section one, I'm going to talk about how you can handle getting injured close to a race. And in section two, I'm going to talk about writing. And I'll move you into the episode with with an interesting, to me anyhow, etymology side path. You know, I like my words. So it has to do with sheep. I know, don't get the wrong ideas. Sheep. I've been doing a lot of reading lately. I usually read two or three books at the same time. And this week I had an interesting experience where I was reading two of these books so in the same like couple hour period, I had read the first book and then read the second book and came across the same phrase in both of those sessions in those books in the same day. So I figured I should look it up and tell you guys about it. And the word was wool gathering. Yeah, it's a word, wool gathering. It's not a phrase, it's a word. You may know this as a phrase, but it's not. It's a word, wool gathering. <laughs> you don't, at least I don't, hear that much of my day-to-day usage. And when you do, it's a bit quaint, it's a bit archaic, but it means to be sort of lost in thought. And it came into English in the 1500s 
when modern English was being formed. And here's how it works. In England at the time, they made, they had a lot of sheep. They were a big wool producer. And when the sheep wandered around and rubbed up against things, tufts of wool would get stuck to the fences and the bushes and that sort of thing. So wool gathering was the process of sending someone out, probably a kid, right, to wander around and collect these little bits of wool. Not a very profitable use of time. So there are a lot of wool-related phrases, pulling the wool over someone's eyes. And this is a little bit later. This is from the 1700s. And it refers to the fact that judges wore wigs made out of, yeah, you guessed it, wool. And when the shyster tried to trick them, it was like he was pulling their wig down over their eyes so they could not see. Or how about from the same sort of uh, later time period, dyed in the wool. Yeah, that's when you put the dye into the coloring, into the raw wool before it's made into cloth. So it fixes in the color. It fixes better. So when you're dyed in the wool, it means you have fixed something very well from the beginning. And the word wool itself goes way, way, way back to the original Indo-European root word, which is, I'll spell it for you. It probably is pronounced wool, but it's H-W-O-L, wool. <laughs> so there you go, a bit of etymological wool gathering. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Late campaign injuries. So I heard someone talking about scrapping their intended race plans because of a late campaign injury. And so I wanted to talk to you about this. And I'll describe the situation. It's very common. And then I'll describe your decision point. Because I humbly submit that you may not need to cancel your target race. And finally, I'll give you some practical advice on how to walk that fine line between injury and race calendar. So what's the situation? Here's your, your typical scenario. You're training for an event. You're feeling strong. You're feeling good. You're feeling confident. And you are somewhere in the third trimester of your training plan. So late in the process. And something happens either an injury or a sickness, and this injury or sickness knocks at least two weeks out of your training. So what are your options? What do you do? Can you still compete in your race? Can you engage in your race at all? What I have discovered over the past many years is that 80% of the time, you can still at least complete the distance. Of course, it depends on the injury, if it's any kind of like muscle pull or muscle tear, those typically take two to four weeks to heal to get to the point where you can race on them again. If it's a common form of tendonitis, it takes a little bit longer to heal. But most of the time with tendonitis, it won't prevent you from completing or competing. It's just a matter of pain management. And even if it is something major like a broken arm or COVID or a heart attack, you may still be able to show up and navigate. So that's the first real decision point. Is it something where you can take a couple of weeks of downtime, 
and still compete? Is it something that is serious enough for you to put competing aside, but you can still show up and have fun? Or is it that end game scenario? And I find people tend to have an overly negative response, like it's the end of the world. You really need to have an open mind and not react before you're sure what's going on. So let's take the first scenario of needing to take two to three weeks off. Very inconvenient at the end of a training plan. At the time, it it seems like the end of the world. Assuming the first two-thirds of that training plan went well, you have this fitness you have you've built this fitness, but now you can't take advantage of that fitness to finish the campaign. It's very frustrating. What people don't realize is that by the time you get to the third period of your training, chances are you've built a bunch of fitness that you're not going to lose by taking a couple weeks off. Mentally, it hurts because you feel untrained. You feel a bit incomplete going into the race. But if you can get over the mental aspect... You can manage the two to three weeks off and actually show up at your event in better shape. Maybe not fitter, but in better shape. You may not have peak fitness, but you'll be rested and strong. And mentally, you won't have so much to lose. When I've gone into an event, I've ironically usually had a much better race. Why? Because I hold back when I'm afraid of the injury. And by holding back, I run better at the end. It takes an injury to keep me from pacing poorly. So what do you do during those two to three weeks when you're not training? Well, you fill that time with all the good stuff, with stretching, with strengthening, and the magic of pool running. Pool running can get you through almost any injury. It's not weight-bearing, and it is exactly the same motion as running. Pool running is the is perfect for maintaining late-stage fitness. And the other thing you need to watch, or you can watch, is your nutrition, right? Not only will a good, clean diet help you heal, but it will keep you from putting on that 5 to 10 pounds in those 2-3 weeks when you're not training. And I find I have to be really proactive about this, especially if I've been running high mileage or high intensity in those weeks as part of your training. My body is on a different burn rate and those 1,000 calories a day have to go somewhere else. So so what do you do when you come out of those two or three weeks off? You've been pool running, you've been stretching. Well, this is the tricky part, and it, and it really helps at this point to have a coach. But what you don't do is drop right back into your training plan where you left off. The late stages of a training plan are where you have those big long runs, those big tempo runs. And depending on how close you are to your event, you're probably just going to do 60% of what was on the original plan and just try to make it healthy into your taper. So let's talk about scenario two. This is a scenario where you've hurt yourself or gotten sick to the point where racing is out of the question, but you still want to show up and enjoy the day. Well, my friends, this is another one of those physician know thyself moments because I've learned that when I Really, I've learned that I really need to get through my thick head that not racing means not racing. Because when I end up standing on that starting line, the little devil in my head says, nah, nah, it's okay, just try. See what happens, right? So if you're not racing, you're not racing, period. Get that through your head. 
And then you could start to plan how you can still participate. And what this means is you're going to go a lot slower, or you're going to take more breaks, or you're going to do a run-walk right from the beginning of the race. And get that into your head. Let the results go. If you have any fitness at all, you can run-walk a marathon. It It's not that hard. <laughs> I took seven full months off last year and run-walked a virtual marathon in about four and a half hours. It's not that hard. If you've got any training done at this point in your cycle, you'll be fine. Set a pace that's two to three to four minutes a mile slower than your normal pace. Work in the walk breaks and just have fun with it. You can still do your pool running and your other cross training to stay fit in those two, three, four, five weeks, whatever it is. You can still manage your nutrition to keep the weight off. And as long as you keep your eye on the prize and set your expectations appropriately, you'll be able to attend the event, pick up the t-shirt, pick up the medal, have some fun. I've seen athletes complete these races weeks after like heart surgery or on crutches with a broken leg. If you really want to do it, you probably can. All right, what about scenario three? You did something so stupid, so foul, that there's no way you can do the race. Well, I mean, you can still go if you want. You can volunteer instead of racing. You can still manage your nutrition. You can still do some sort of stretching and strengthening, even if you can't, you know, get in the pool. My point here is, folks, is that you don't have to give up on your race when you get a little late-stage interruption. It's really a choice, and you can make it. And I know it's hard, but all good decisions are hard, right? And you can take pride in finding a way to participate in the face of adversity. You can take pride in that. And that is how you manage a late-stage injury. And now for today's featured interview. So, Kayla, how are you? Good. How are you? Why don't you give us the, the 200 words on who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. So my name is Kayla Slater. I'm a registered dietitian as well as a certified run coach. Um, and I'm mostly known as an online plant-based dietitian, nutrition, run coach, and founder of Plant-Based Performance Nutrition and Run Coaching, uh, where I do online nutrition as well as run coaching for um, clients, working with clients online. Um, and I'm also a runner. I'm also a plant-based runner, more specifically, um, and mostly a marathon runner. Lots of half marathons, lots of 5Ks, and I've been probably running since I was 13, 14, so at least 10 years running. So uh, you've got a different cut at what your coaching is, right? So yes. your coaching is run coaching, but it's plant-based run coaching. But you're also a registered nurse, I think, right? Dietitian. Dietitian, right? So you've got that slice of it. I've talked to people recently who have been run coaches and also sort of lifestyle coaches, right? So yes. they have a sort of psychology cut to it, right? Which I think is yes. really appropriate. But oh, it's yeah. interesting to me how we're sort of subcategorizing the coaching now. And that's great because you're finding yes. the people that you, you fit. So my long right. way around asking the question, so who's your perfect coachee? Who's your target yeah. audience? Yeah. So my perfect person to work with is really a plant-based marathon runner. Because uh, most of my experience I've worked with, you know, my personal experience is running marathons. But I've been plant-based for a while and there's just so many benefits, you know, not just health benefits. And now I've gotten more into just the ethical reasons of why to be plant-based. Um, and I've just seen so many people wanting to go that way, but don't really know how to do it. And also right. seeing how... 
Um, and even personally, I've experienced the challenges that goes along with that. Yes, there's all these benefits, um, but it's not easy to do. And especially if we have busy lives and are training a lot, it's not easy to do it the right way um, and make sure you're doing it in a way so you're not in. Um, I just kind of grown to, I guess, be a really passionate kind of specific niche that I really wanted to help people with. Yeah, good for you. It's it's interesting because as an athlete, there's there's even more challenges, and some of those are the myths around around that, right? About yeah. you know how do you how do you fuel, right? If I'm running 110 miles a week, how do I fuel for that? If I'm out doing a multi-hour long run, how do I fuel for that? I'm not going to be able to eat enough celery, you know, <laughs> to to power me through that. There's a lot of myths around being plant based, right? Yeah, absolutely. Whereas you can flip those over. So for health, I'll start there. Um, the benefits are, you know, preventing heart disease, even reversing heart disease or even chronic diseases in general, diabetes, lots of things. Cancer can even prevent cancer. cancer. Diabetes. Um, yeah, all of that. So there's definitely huge health benefits for it. And as we know, um, those are probably the main chronic diseases we have right now in America are diabetes, heart disease, cancer. Um, yeah. I believe cancer, heart disease are still up there on the chart, either number one, number two. I think COVID might have squeezed in there a little ways, but um, there's still those, you know, those chronic diseases that are killing us that Uh, our lifestyle diseases, really things that we can prevent with diet. Um, And then the benefits for athletes, I would say there are, there's more research, which is really exciting. Um, When I first got into it, into this, there wasn't actually that much research behind being plant-based for athletes, um, but there's more and more research coming out and because people are interested in it and that are active, um, which is really exciting. But we do know there's some research that shows there's recovery benefits um, for being a plant-based athlete. So, um, and a lot of the athletes, specifically runners that I've actually talked with, um, um, a lot of them too are more kind of the longer distance, more like ultra runners. They have told me that, um, you know, the recovery is so much quicker and they can just bounce back, you know, back to running um, a lot faster. What does the research show? Why do we think that is? Ooh, that is a really good question. So, um, yeah. You're the nutritionist. You can handle that question. (laughs) I don't know if I really have a a really good answer for that, you know, scientific reasoning behind it. Um, But I can tell you there, uh, it does have to do with... um, the phytochemicals are called in our fruits and vegetables. We have phytochemicals and I do believe it has something to do with really just the composition, eating more of those types of foods to helping your body just recover. Yeah. It, it it attacks something in the, in the muscles, right? Some sort of free radicals or something. Same. That's the same reason. That's the same correlation with the the cancer as well. Yeah. and yes, yeah, exactly. none of this stuff is a silver bullet, but it's a correlation over long periods of time. I think the the Framingham study is up to like 60 years now. They're tracking diet versus uh, health outcomes. Clear enough that you can call it causation. What have you experienced personally? I mean, you must be a story here behind this for you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. For me, it's actually more, I think, the health benefits of it. Um, I actually do have, you know, even though I never really struggled with weight or like obesity or anything with that, um, I did have nearly high cholesterol. I do have high, um, 
you know, a heredit- it's hereditary in my family with heart disease and high cholesterol. Um, and I kind of was headed that way, actually. Um, obviously, and this was in college, but obviously in college, we don't ever eat that healthy or maybe not get the exercise we need. Um, but I was really actually headed to that way. And a lot of people, you know, may not realize that they may see me as, oh, you know, she's, Kayla looks like she's always been healthy. She's always been, you know, around the same size. Um, but really internally, um, it didn't look that good. (laughs) My lab work wasn't that great. Um, and when I actually went plant-based, it actually just like, like everything was just like better. Um, another big thing too, which is actually very specific more towards athletes as well is iron levels. Um, I always kind of struggled kind of on the lower end. Yeah. Yeah. Especially women. And I was always kind of on the lower end. I like to give, um, I got into like, I think really since high school, I started giving blood routinely and just, you know, it was just something I really liked to do. It was like, I don't mind needles and you can take my blood. Why not? You know, I could save a life. That's something I can do. Right. Um, but a lot of times those actually turned away because my iron was low. Um, yeah. and I was worried when I went plant-based, if my iron was going to be good enough. Um, and it actually ended up never having an issue since I feel like I've gone plant-based and I've been eating the right way. Um, they really haven't had an issue to, to not be able to give blood because of my iron, um, especially yes. the athletes. We know iron is important. So that I think is a really cool thing that we see is we think when we're plant based, our iron's actually going to be lower. Um, but I've seen this with other athletes as well. Your iron actually improves. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that before. And yeah. it, a lot of times people try to simplify it because people are basically not that smart. Most of the time they uh, <laughs> they go it's the content of the food you're eating equals the content of that macronutrient or micronutrient in your system. But right. there's a conversion process in between there. And these different foods yes. get converted. They kick off different conversion processes, right? Yes. In your, in your body. So you may not actually, just because this slab of steak is high in iron, doesn't mean you're going to get that iron out the other side. Same, same yes. thing is true with um, I've heard. Same thing is true with dairy, right? They say dairy is high in calcium, but that doesn't actually translate to calcium in your system when it goes through the process because there's some acids involved. But yeah. that may be, I may be lying. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right on track. Yeah. There's different, I believe it's called bioavailability. So there's a different amount of bioavailability we get from iron and things and even calcium, you know, calcium rich foods. There's a different amount that we actually absorb into our actual bodies. So even though there's a source that we think like meat, right, has high iron in it. Yeah. It's good for the environment. It's all logic exactly. is never going to convince people to do it. So how do you, how do you <laughs> right. how do you how do you ease people into a plant-based uh, program? Yeah. Like where do you start? So I would say most people have some kind of interest usually when they talk to me that they're like, yeah, like I'm interested in plant-based nutrition um, or eating that way. Um, I usually don't, you know, really work trying to convince somebody. It's more of like, you know, hopefully they just kind of are educated. Um, but if people want to be more educated, there's so many resources, you know, obviously out there more where a lot of people start, you know, some people watch like Game Changers was like, a you know, a documentary that a lot of athletes watched and were like, oh my gosh, I want to be plant-based now. Um, so a lot of times those, I think documentaries, things like that, people are like, you know, just sparks their interest in wanting to learn more. Um, but when somebody is new to plant-based, kind of where we start is, I really just try to encourage them to 
you know, eat more plant-based sources. You know, you don't have to be completely 100% whole food plant-based is really ideal, but that's not where, you know, I'd start somebody if they're, you know, going from being a carnivore to wanting to be plant-based. Um, I always think it's it's better to gradually go that, just go more that way. Um, that's personally how I kind of did it. I mean, there was kind of like a day where I just decided, okay, I'm going to go vegan and I'm going to try this for 30 days. When it's vegan, we can certainly now, there's so many plant-based processed foods out there, which is great to have that option. Um, but we also know those aren't the best foods for us because um, they're still processed. So now it's, yeah, you know, right. going more into, okay, how can right. I incorporate more whole foods? So yep. um, you, I think, you could eat nothing but potato chips and you're vegan. Yes. <laughs> yes. You're still going to die. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. French fries. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And most My favorite people... things in the world. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and most people I think that come to me um, usually do it for somewhat health reasons. I would say most of them are because they're active and they, they enjoy running for the love of running. Um, and they're doing it because, you know, it's activity and getting that exercise is good for us. So a lot of times they really just want to be plant-based for health. So that's why we try to, you know, we slowly progress over more towards eating more whole foods. So do you think there's a connection in one way or the other where the running regimen leads you to, uh, you know, a healthier, air quotes, um, nutrition regimen or the other way around, a healthier nutrition regimen leads you to say, oh, now I want to exercise? Yeah, I think it can be either for people. It really depends. I would say for me, it probably was running probably came first. And then me, because I was interested in running, I wanted to learn more about nutrition. And that's kind of how I actually got into even going to school and studying nutrition was I realized it had took such a big, you know, it was so important. And I was like, but there's so much misinformation out there. And I was like, I need to really just study this and, and really want to figure this out so I can help people with it. Um, but I think some people also go the other ways. I know people that have been, you know, diabetic, overweight, obese, they've switched to a plant-based diet and then they started running because they felt so good that then they were like, okay, I want to move my body more. And they get into a sport like running that they just fall in love with. And they're like, wow, this is really fun. And, you know, it's good for me. Yeah. It's a, it's an enabler either way, right? It's a positive uh, reinforcement loop. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Tactically, right? We've got these folks out here who may be, you know, the back of the pack or mid pack half marathoner, marathoner, you know, and I see them when I go to marathon races, right? They got the, the 42 gels, you know, <laughs> stapled to their chest. They're like, duh, what are you doing to yourself? You're going to kill yourself or tons of Gatorade, you know, or whatever it is, right? Or, or, or pasta loading the night before you know what do you give to folks in a like a half marathon training plan as a you know pre-race post-race recovery like what are some of the specific tricks and tips of the trade that you you probably had to discover as you're working (laughs) through it with athletes right yeah absolutely yeah yeah so pre-race that i always recommend you know still having that carb meal but they give it more of like you know just have a really good well-balanced meal incorporate carbs but as plant-based what i think is also probably one of the benefits of it is really a plant-based diet is heavy in carbs it's 70 to 80 percent carbohydrates um if you're counting your macros which could seem really high to people but we're getting those carbohydrates from obviously fruits and vegetables whole grains 
all things that come with fiber and good stuff. So I always say pre-race, you know, have that carb meal, but you know, you can have the well-balanced meal is really important and just eating, you know, more of a whole food um, meal. So that's usually not probably any different. And then I would say during fueling. So, so what's an example of a, a meal? Like, would you do a, oh. a, a bowl or, a, you know, what would you do? Yeah. Yeah. I love uh, quinoa or like Buddha bowls. Um, or sometimes I will do like the lentil pasta and add some veggies in there. Some chickpeas, like that. Mm-hmm. some avocados. Yeah. So you're getting a little bit of everything. You're getting the, yes. the fats, you're getting the protein, you're getting the carbs. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yep. So a little bit of everything. You're also loading a lot of roughage into your system pre-race there. Though. So you, <laughs> you, I would imagine you have to time that right. Yes, that's true. Yeah, you do want to... Uh, obviously this is going to be the night before, so you should have enough, you know, time, you yeah. know, if you're doing a morning race to really digest it all. Um, yeah, and that's one of the few yeah. times that I'll go heavy on, on bread, like good bread is yeah. usually I avoid sure. bread just because it's so high in carb. Yeah, sure. Sure. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. And then and what do you, what do you eat during your race? You're during. out there for three hours. What do you eat? <laughs> yeah. So I think gels are very useful and still, um, useful for a marathon. You know, those gels are those chews. Um, but there are options that are more like natural and kind of less added sugars, which is great. So the ones, uh, the gels I actually use are, are the Huma gels and they're made out of chia seeds. Um, okay. so they're more natural they're gluten-free, you know, all of that. Um, and they're not as sweet. Um, but it really, I think is on preference of what people want. Um, but I know for some, like some of my athletes are more whole food plant-based and they're like, I just can't fathom eating these sugary gels, you know, through yeah. the whole, that whole time. So what I suggest is alternate, have a gel and a, a date. I don't know if you've ever heard of using dates, but it's a really popular. I use dates. Perfect. Yes. So dates are perfect. One date is like 30 grams of carbohydrates, um, which is what you want to fuel with. Um, That's exactly how much your gels have. Um, So I say alternate, you know, if you don't want to eat those gels every 45 minutes to an hour through the race and have three or four gels, then, you know, alternate those dates. Yeah. And the, the ultra guys have some great home recipes for for making your own stuff. Um, Yeah. I used to do uh, mountain bike ultra races, because it's easier to carry stuff on the bike, right? You can yes. carry more stuff. Um, right. I used to make these uh, chocolate peanut butter balls that were all organic, right? You use cocoa nibs and organic peanut butter. <laughs> they were they were amazing, right? Because nice. you got the caffeine and the nuts, yeah. Yeah, so definitely with the ultra running world, um, you know, they talk about definitely using more whole foods rather than those gels because you're running for so long or biking for so long. You certainly don't want to have those gels or chews the whole time. Certainly, that's yeah. not the healthiest thing. <laughs> yeah, you get sick to your stomach. But going to switch to eating dates or whatever it is, you have to um, you have to train your body to do that. You can't just show up on race day to do it. Yes, your absolutely. Body, yeah. yeah, good point. Yeah, your body has to learn how to stop. Yes, I always encourage people to practice, especially if you're plant based and you're eating more fiber. Right, we really want to practice this in our training. And I always tell that to people: never try something new on race day. Um, it's the worst time because then you will have, you know, you could have GI issues. So that we don't want. <laughs> yeah. Cause you're going to be nervous anyhow. So yes, your body's going to be doing weird things. Exactly. Um, so, so yeah. what's your, what's your post-race meal? The post-race meal is a black bean burger with sweet potato fries. That is like my go-to meal. Um, but what I usually recommend is actually 
after a race, at least with most marathons, we don't have good sources of protein, especially plant-based. Sometimes maybe you could get chocolate milk or something, but obviously if you're avoiding dairy, that doesn't work for you. So what I tell people is this is actually the time, a great time to use a protein shake. Um, I know most people, you know, that are wanting to be more whole food plant-based. So like, well, okay, that's not whole foods, um, which I totally get it. But there is times, you know, as athletes that I think we should be using these um, supplements in a way that's going to help our recovery a lot better. So what I recommend is, you know, take that protein with you, um, have it in a bottle. So then after the race, when you grab that water bottle, be able to make that shake up that protein shake, have that right after, because then that's going to help recover your muscles faster. And then within two hours, you know, whether you go out to eat or, you know, have something to eat, um, you know, just have a well-balanced meal, um, including carbohydrates and protein. Nope, you're right. Um, and what I'll do sometimes is uh, make smoothies. I mean, if you're if you can carry stuff to the race and have it when you're done, yes. make yourself a nice spinach smoothie with the protein powder go. in it. But I don't use the whey the whey powder. I use the uh, plant based protein powder. Great, because it's cleaner. Um, yeah. But that's actually and you use the almond milk as the awesome. base, and so it mm-hmm. it's actually very filling and very satisfying as well. If you yeah. find a way to keep it cool, I actually ran right. one alter ultra using that as fuel. So I just mixed up a bunch of bottles of that. And I, it was, it was one of those alters that was like a figure eight. So it went by your stuff every like 5k. So I drink some smoothie every time and it yeah. worked out pretty well. Nice. I'm not, That's you couldn't perfect. do that in a faster race. Cause you would probably, it would upset you, but in a, yeah. in an ultra where you're not moving that fast, it, uh, it worked well. Smoothies. Okay. Got to love awesome. your smoothies. <laughs> yes, use them when they're needed. Now, people laugh at smoothies because it's like, eh, you know, this new age stuff. But what it does is you have those periods naturally in your day where you're where you're starving, right? Mm-hmm. You just like you come home from work, you're starving. Or you wake up in the morning, you're starving. If you can yeah. chuck down a smoothie, that will kill your hunger pains. And yeah. it's only like four to 600 calories and it's all good stuff. And you don't have to prepare anything if you already have it in the fridge. And it yes. it's, it gets you past that risk point, right? Where you might otherwise grab something not yes. so good. Yes, yeah. absolutely too. And yeah, I think too, when it comes to making sure we're eating enough and fueling enough, at least with plant-based athletes, that's the biggest struggle and challenge. I work with them. But even if you're not plant-based, that's what I see a lot is we're just under fueling. We're not eating enough um, right. for the activity that we're doing. So I always, you know, I encourage smoothies too in the way that is that they can really help you to meet those calories because it's a lot easier to drink um, our calories than, you know, have a big bowl of, you know, spinach and kale and grains right. and vegetables yeah. and all that. Yep. And meal meal prep is super important because like yeah. you said, a lot of times people make the transition and end up just not eating because they went away from one thing, but didn't set up the structure to get the other thing. Yes. Right? Because a lot of the stuff we're talking about takes some preparation. Yes. It's not like something you can unwrap and stuff down your throat. (laughs) Um, All right. That's cool. So, what's your best success story? Personally, before another client. Best story. (laughs) This is your best story. You got to have good stories. Best story. I don't know. I would say just always progressing um, and, you know, getting better. And I think that just comes from just not giving up and just keep going. Um, you know, that's, it's, it gets hard. There are times where it just gets really hard and you want to quit and you want to give up. Um, you know, I've been trying to chase this Boston qualifying time for a while and 
all the time. I'm like, I know how to do maybe that, I'm just going to quit. I'm just going to quit. I just can't, can't do this. I'm so close. And it's like, right. It's just when you're so close, you always want to quit. And I would say just, yeah, just, you just got to keep going. You just got to keep going for it. Keep, you know, yep. in your mind, good. And just know like, okay, you know, you can do it. Like just yeah. got to keep going. So what are your, how do people find you? Yeah. So how do people find me? Um, I am everywhere. I am on Facebook. I'm on IG. I'm on uh, Instagram is the plant-based underscore performance underscore RD. Um, Also on YouTube and TikTok. You can find me there as well. Yeah. Cool. Send me the links. We'll put them in the show notes. Great. Thanks for taking the time today. And you got a podcast too, right? I do. Yes. The plant-based performance podcast. All right. Cool. For anyone's plant-based curious, right? Yes. All right. Thanks for talking. We'll see you. You're welcome. I will uh, leave your links in the show notes, like I said. All right. And you have a a wonderful Thursday. Awesome. You too. All right. Cheers. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Okay, my friends, this is a piece that I called on the music of words. And this is the part where I write, which is not hard for me. I love to write. I love to hear the sound of my own thoughts as they arrange themselves magically into sentences and paragraphs. I don't know how this magic works. If it is something I learned through long years of school or something I was born with, But I hear the flow and the music of the cadence in my mind. And when it flows, it meets no cognitive resistance. It's music. And I've often heard that musicians and mathematicians are very similar in the way they make good programmers. Could it be that they see the code as music, the same way they see the beautiful symmetry of the notes and the numbers? There is something there. And most likely it's a combination of both nature and nurture. Maybe in my case I have the available wetware in in an appropriate configuration, and then I fed it and watered it with schooling and a few thousand books. When it doesn't flow, it isn't awful. It's not writer's block. I don't think there really is a writer's block as classically defined. You know, how it looks in the movies where the tortured artist stares at the blank page and waits for inspiration to come, I don't think that exists. What does happen, in my experience, is a lot of avoidance and procrastination. You fail to start, not because you can't, but because the erratic can of worms in your head for some reason is afraid to. And it can be fear of failure or fear of success, It can be that the writer is comparing, comparing to other great artists who somehow have the gift that they don't, or comparing to an older version of yourself, a fear of not measuring up, the classic imposter syndrome. And the only way to avoid the self-proclaimed failure is to not start at all. And I have found that in this sense, writing is just like going for a run. No, really? Stay with me here. Let's tell the story of your typical run. Let's say it's getting late in the day, you're out of energy, it just start, started to rain a little bit, and you need to get your run in. But you don't want to. What happens? You get your stuff on, you head out anyway, 
You make some sort of deal with yourself just to get out the door and see how it goes. At first, it's hard. You're tight. You're sore. You're tired. You really have to focus on the mechanics. Put one foot in front of the other. Build on that. Brick by brick, step by step. And then what happens? Well, pretty soon you're relaxed. And it becomes easy. Or at least easier. And you stop thinking about the running mechanics. And your mind wanders off into other places. On the best days, at some point, you might drop into a type of flow state. And euphoria comes with that. You feel like you're flying. And for me, that's the same with writing. I may be tired and not want to do it. But I sit down and I start. And what happens? At first, putting the words together is like laying bricks. The mechanics of it is very simple. I build sentences that feel like something out of a Dick and Jane primer. It's not art. It's not beautiful. But it is content and progress. And more often than not, I'll return to these early paragraphs and edit them later. But at some point, the words start to flow. And more often than not, the topic I started with will get lost, and I'll be scampering down a new, unrelated path, chasing merry rabbits of a new sort as my mind starts to build those connections, and it sees the music. And when I'm having a good day, it'll start to flow. I'll experience a type of euphoria where I'm not creating the art. I am watching the art be created by some magic. And I will literally sit back and giggle like a spectator, seeing the execution of some fine magical act. So if writer's block is not being able to get into that wonderful flow, I get it. That's the apex. That's the gift. That's the rare thing, the rare form of execution. Indeed. But hear this. The only way to get to that flow state is to start dropping bricks on the page and spreading the mental mortar. For me, more often than not, what keeps me from doing my best work is interruption and switching cost. Interruption is when you're in the midst of a flow state, or at least moving along and something intrudes. The phone rings, the watch buzzes, the dog barks. My body decides I've had too much tea to drink. That's why when you read about writers and their craft and I suppose the same is true for all creatives, you see this narrative of them having to go hide somewhere to finish their novel, hopefully not a creepy hotel in Colorado in the dead of winter, or you see them having to actively cut off the outside world to get work done. There are these stories of these writers who won't use a computer because of distractions, or if they do use a computer, they disable the internet and plug up all the ports so they can't get distracted. And the problem with these interruptions is they reset your state. And that is the switching cost. When you go from one thing to another or from one state to another, you pay a penalty. You can't start back up where you stopped. The human mind needs to get in and out of tasks and states. The crappy part is that you can get knocked out of state immediately. But to get back into state, you have to start all over again by laying the bricks and hoping that the flow will eventually return. And this is why interruptions, combined with the switching cost, are so devastating to the creative process. Often, after an interruption, I'll realize the moment is just lost and just move on to something else. The switching cost is too high 
to get back into the flow and the time allotted. And that's why I love riding on airplanes. <laughs> At least in the old days, you could pretty much guarantee not getting interrupted while working on the plane. So bringing it all the way back around, as we do, is good writing the product of nature, nurture, or just the product of plain old hard work? Observationally, it helps to have been born with the correct wiring. Observationally, this then requires some nurturing to manifest itself as usable talent. Observationally, enough effort can usually overcome either. So happy day. You're all right. And you may have just realized, because you're smart and good-looking, that this whole piece was an exercise in exactly the point I was trying to make. I started with a blank page and spit up 100 words or so into it during a null time in my workday. Then I used that kernel to let my mind weave a narrative while I was strapped to an airplane seat. And if you listened well, you'll notice the first few hundred words were workmanlike. But somewhere along the way, I started having fun. And the magic machine kicked out the phrase, head full of worms, or something like that. Erratic head full of worms, I think I said. Which I think aptly describes how most of us feel when trying to rationalize our existence here. Life imitates art. Or is it the other way around? Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, that's episode 4-475 of the Run Run Live podcast. I've had to stop running completely for a couple weeks. That's my update. Even with that run-walk method, my knee is just too sore to do it. And it's it started to make a funny noise. <laughs> so uh, I had to give up. And it's hard, right? Running fills so many of the holes in my life that it really takes a chunk of me away when I can't do it. On the one hand, there's the, the physical and physiological part. Running gives me happiness and health. It keeps me physically fit and mobile. It keeps me from gaining weight. It keeps me from, from filling that time with other bad habits. It's my healthy lifestyle enabler. So without it, I feel like I'm in a constant state of decline into decrepitude. And not running has a psychological impact. I don't get that alone time in the trails or on the road with my cerebellum bathed in happy chemicals to think about things. And this puts me on my back foot psychologically during the day. And I don't get that badly needed relief valve that running is. And there's there's also a loss of community. I can't go for that five-mile run with my buddies. I can't have those great conversations that we have. And it's all very isolating. So I have not been back to the doctor to take a look at this knee, but it feels like the same thing I had six, eight months ago. And this injury manifested over a year ago now, as I was doing hill repeats one morning or afternoon. I can't remember when. And I and I don't think the hill repeats were the cause. I think I did something the previous summer because I had been having odd sharp pains in the knee uh, when I kneeled down for a few months. And so that's how it is, man. When you get injured, you tend to think in terms of time frames. Muscles take a couple weeks to heal. Fascia takes weeks to months to heal. And this is something new, some sort of bone thing, which according to my entirely made up time frame should have been getting better in nine months or so. 
And that's when I started to run, walk, train to see if I couldn't use active recovery to build strength and actively recover around the healing process. But as is sometimes the case, our injuries ignore our time frame rules. I probably should have stayed off it. So now I'm staying off it. We'll see what strategy we can use to stay in shape and stay in some sort of shape and get some of the physiological and psychological benefits in in different places, in different ways. I still plan to go to Cincinnati and hang out with my friends, probably limp through the flying pig, but, you know, it's not really what I wanted, right? It's not what I needed. So, anyhow, when I got to the parking garage today at the airport this morning, I got a bit turned around and ended up not following the signs. Yeah, those signs that point you towards the parking and tell you that the only parking spaces are up on the roof. So I hate parking on the roof at the airport. Your car gets covered with jet fuel scum, and if it snows, you end up having to clear it by hand. So I didn't, I ended up not following the signs. I turned off into the first floor, and there was a parking space right in front of the exit door. And I'm not one of those people who circles parking lots looking for the perfect space. And I usually follow the signs because they're there for a reason. But in some cases, following the signs gives you a better result. And not following the signs sometimes gives you a better result. Just like sometimes not following the signs of an injury can give you better results. Other times, not so much. We all make our own way in this world, and it's up to you which signs to pay attention to and which ones not to. Keep the faith, and I will see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.